Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Marjorie Prokosh. She is postdoctoral scholar in the Disasters, Trust and Social Change Lab at the University of Florida and an incoming assistant professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She studies uh, social and health-related decision-making with an emphasis on our environmental threats and our condition motivate our perceptions and behavior. In her current role at UF, she is examining how environmental hazards like hurricanes and climate change threats intersect with social inequality to impact decision-making. And we're going to talk a bit about all of those topics. So Dr. Prokosh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so let's start by talking about harshness and the impacts that it has on our development, I guess. So uh, what are harsh conditions? I mean, in psychology, how do you define harsh conditions and what happens during, develop, during development when people are exposed to them? So yeah, so I primarily used um, life history theory in my work in graduate school, and it's just a theory, again, that says that um, you can only spend a calorie once, and so organisms tend to spend those calories wisely in ways that facilitate survival and reproduction in their environment. Um, and so they tend to use cues of harshness and unpredictability in their environment to sort of guide their growth to help them be most successful. And so when I say cues like harshness, I mean things like anything that can sort of pose a risk of death or disability. And so this may be something like famine. It might be something like living in a very dangerous neighborhood where violence is common. Um, it might mean things like food and resource scarcity, so not having the basic necessities that you need to thrive. Um, and then also unpredictability. So this is really um, not only about the environment more broadly, but also our social environment. So is this harshness or, you know, niceness in your environment something that's consistent or is it something that changes often? Like, do you sort of, do you know what to expect on the day-to-day -day in your environment? Um, and this is especially relevant in our social environment, right? Because even environments that are marked by harshness, right? So things like resource scarcity that might come from poverty, um, you might have a great network of friends or family that help to sort of buffer you from those risks, right? And so, um, you know, if you're in an environment where things are particularly unpredictable and you don't know if, you know, your friends or family have your back, that can be especially jarring, right? Mm -hmm. So, but what aspects of human behavior does exposure to harshness influence? So from life history theory, they talk about having early exposure, so ages zero to five or six or so. Um, some studies say zero to 12, but it really seems to be early childhood that's crucial for this, is that what you tend to see is that people who are in environments that are especially harsh and unpredictable, they tend to grow up quicker. So you see quicker physical maturity. Um, so for example, reaching puberty sooner, um, sexual maturity sooner. Sometimes you see um, earlier sexual debut, so starting to have sex earlier in life, um, starting a family earlier, um, oftentimes having more children. And this can actually be an adaptive and a an harsh and unpredictable environment because if you sort of don't know what the next day brings, if you wait a lot longer to start these things, like start your life, start your family, um, you may not actually live long enough to realize that dream, right? 
And so oftentimes um, you see in like the health literature that people are pathologizing some of these things, but when you think about it um, using an evolutionary lens, these behaviors aren't necessarily unrational. They're, they're, they're rational, right? Um, mm -hmm. At least th through that light. Mm -hmm. And how does it affect people's perceptions? So one of the things that, um, that at least life history predicts is that if you're in an environment that again is sort of harsh and unpredictable, it doesn't really pay off to think about things in the long term. It really pays off to focus your energies and your efforts on here and today. So for example, if you don't know if you're going to have, you know, money for rent this month, then you're really not so worried about your 401k or starting a 401k, right? You're worried about getting your needs met here. Um, and so oftentimes you tend to see is that people who have grown up and are living in harsh and unpredictable environments, they tend to sort of live for the now. Um, and again, this can be an adaptive thing, right? Because if you don't know what's coming tomorrow, um, you really just need to focus on the problems facing you today. Mm -hmm. So what about specifically risk perception? How does it influence that aspect of human psychology? So that's an interesting one. Um, it's kind of a complex relationship. Um, I will say there are some studies that suggest that um, if you're somebody, again, who's sort of cued to expect harshness and unpredictability in your environment, um, and you do in, indeed tend to live in an environment like that when you grow up, um, that you tend to see that, you know, when times are stressful, you might be more willing to take the risk um, because, again, you're expecting that maybe you won't be as resilient um, to whatever threat is facing you. But um, there are also studies that show that, you know, if you grew up in a harsh and unpredictable environment, but times are good in adulthood, um, that you don't necessarily see that same pattern of accelerated risk taking. And so, um, I'm not really doing it a lot of justice here, but it's a fairly complex relationship. Mm -hmm. And what about self-regulation? Because that seems to be one of the things that people talk a lot about and worry about. I mean, people being able to self-regulate more or less, depending on the conditions they are exposed to during development. Sure. So, I mean, our society is um, sort of geared toward what we would call a slower life history strategy, mm -hmm. right? And so um, slower life history strategies, to put this in context, um, are if you grow up in a sort of benign, stable environment, lots of social support, what you tend to see is that people sort of um, take longer to develop. They tend to um, delay having a family in favor of more self-investment. Um, and they tend to have fewer kids, invest more in those kids, um, put away for retirement early, slowly save. But again, um, you know, that's, that's society is sort of set up to benefit that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that having a shortened window of opportunity is necessarily a maladaptive thing. It just maybe isn't the best fit in modern environments where again, we've sort of set people up to, um, to have to self-regulate a lot. I know one of the contexts that we talk about this a lot in is some work that um, I was lucky to collaborate on in graduate school and uh, members of my former graduate lab, so Dr. Sarah Hill's lab are still doing. Um, they look at this a lot in the context of eating and eating regulation. And so the idea being that in ancestral environments, um, one really common form of harshness was food instability, right? Mm -hmm. And so like sort of not knowing where your next meal was going to come from. And so if you're in that sort of environment where foraging or hunting or resources aren't good, um, you sort of learn to 
not necessarily um, follow your bodily cues of hungry um, and like just really go with whatever is around you. And so if you have a big kill, like, um, you know, you eat that food now, even if you're not feeling necessarily hungry because you don't know when calories are going to come next. And so, mm. you know, for our ancestors, this may have been a very adaptive thing to do. And it may very well have been the difference between life or death you know, um, to eat whenever food is available and not just when you're hungry. However, in uh, modern environments, right, even if you're relatively poor um, and food insecure, there are a lot of um, foods around that are very calorie rich and not necessarily <laughs> the healthiest foods, right, like a Big Mac. Um, you can get a dollar Big Mac, right? Um, and so, you know, eating in the context of whenever food is around now may not be as adaptive as it was then because there's a lot of, again, like low quality, high calorie foods available. And so um, they call this sort of a, like an evolutionary mismatch. And so again, in like ancestral conditions, it would have been good to learn to ignore your hunger and eat based on the cues around you. Um, now, maybe not such a great thing when we're surrounded by fast food um, and, you know, with inflation, you know, this high quality food seems to be going up and up in price. Big Macs are saying relatively the same, right? Um, temptations abound. And so um, in the context of modern environments, um, eating based on cues and not based on your hunger can be this thing that can contribute to obesity, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that answers your question. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to ask you also, how does exposure to harsh conditions manifest in the domain of close relationships in terms of uh, the kinds of decisions that people make about their close relationships? Sure. Um, so I've dabbled in this a little tiny bit from a life history theory. I would say this is not like a major area that I've looked at, um, mm -hmm. at least in the context of life history. Um, but I do know that that literature talks a lot about, again, um, especially social harshness and instability and the idea that if you sort of grow up in an environment where the people around you can't really easily be trusted, um, you may be more likely to be less trusting of people as an adult, sort of have looser attachments with people. You may be more prone to um, slip in and out of relationships more easily. Um, and again, it's just because, um, you know, you may have been raised to predict that you can't depend on other people. So maybe um, you depend more on yourself. Um, I will say, though, that this isn't like a blanket statement, right? Um, again, I mentioned that social environments can be a very buffering thing in harsh environments, like having a very supportive social network. Um, someone who's done some really interesting work on this that I definitely recommend looking into is Steve Newberg's lab. Mm -hmm. He has this whole idea that we sort of push people through things like redlining, um, systemic prejudice, stuff like this. Um, sorry, systemic discrimination. Um, we push people into these sort of harsh ecologies. However, um, that, you know, communities are wonderfully resilient and um, people find ways to sort of buffer these risks through their social networks. And so, for example, um, if you're somebody who has, um, uh, um, if you're somebody who's poor and like maybe you have a lot of resource scarcity that you're facing, you can sort of buffer, um, buffer these risks by storing calories in your friends, right? Like you can borrow food from a friend in an especially harsh time, or maybe you live in a community with a wonderful food pantry. Um, and so these risks might not be quite the same as if you were living in a place that's truly unsupportive, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So changing topics now, how is the immune system connected to psychology and behavior? 
Sure. Um, so the immune system is part of our body. Um, one thing I think we're learning as we get more into the weeds of science is that the brain and the body are connected. They're not necessarily this, you know, dual separate thing, right? And so um, if we want to learn more about the mind, we really need to learn about the ways that it interplays with the body. And so psychoneuroimmunology, or in the case of the article, I think you might have pulled up psychobehavioral immunology is really yeah. about the, studying the interplay between those things. So between the brain, the body and behavior. And so in um, our context, looking at how the immune system, which is active in the brain and our body relates to our thinking and behavior. So what happens when people are exposed to the threat of infectious disease? How does that influence their decision making, for example? Sure. Um, so just to kind of speak about this broadly, infectious disease, I think, like, I don't have to sell you as much um, that that's a problem for human wellness and survival now that there's been a pandemic recently. Um, but really, like, disease has been a threat to us since our inception. Um, these little microbes and critters have been out to get us since the start. They evolve at a much more rapid rate than us. And so um, even like our basic immune system is there to combat this problem. So something so fundamental about our biology was literally designed just to keep these other things out of us and from killing us, right? <laughs> and so um, just to set us up, they're, they're a major problem. And so some scientists think that um, they've even been such a big problem that we have this thing called a behavioral immune system, which is that we have a set of psychological mechanisms that help us sort of sniff out potential cues of infection in our environment and have, you know, a reaction that motivates us to stay away from these things and helps to keep us from getting sick in the first place. Um, because again, um, our immune system, our physical immune system, it's a wonderful thing. Um, it does a pretty darn good job of catching these little bugs when they get in our body, um, quarantining them, neutralizing them, getting rid of them, but it's not perfect. Um, it comes at a cost to our body, so it's very energetically costly. So I think um, I read one paper that said it increases our metabolic, so um, our like calorie needs by up to 13% to do something like run a fever. And so it actually does take a lot of energy. So when you're feeling sapped and drained when you're sick, it's because it literally requires extra energy to fight off this thing that's infected you. Um, it's also not perfect. So one thing we know from this pandemic, right, is that many people died from SARS-CoV-19. And so they're still trying to figure out all the different reasons why some people came out of it perfectly fine and some people, you know, took a turn for the worse and died. Um, but one thing that it serves to reinforce, right, is that our immune systems aren't perfect and they're not a perfect match for everything in our environment. So relying them on them as your sole line of defense against getting sick and dying is not a perfect strategy. And so having this sort of double pronged um, defense system of having a psychological system that keeps you away from them in the first place and a physical system that serves as a backup if you do still get infected um, is definitely you know, a better bet than relying on just our physical defenses. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, in what ways does the exposure to a threat of infectious disease change people's behavior? Sure. So um, one of the things that we know is that um, if we're around these cues of infectious disease, they tend to motivate avoidance by doing things like making us feel disgusted. So, um, Ricardo, how do you feel if you're sitting on the subway and somebody next to you like 
hawks a big loogie or sneezes or is vomiting. Disgusted. Yeah, you feel queasy and like, mm. what do you want to do when you notice that that person is vomiting? Uh, get away from her. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, you're motivated to get away from the smell, to get away from all of it, right? Um, because mm. your body is sensitive to these cues because they signal, hey, I could also get sick and possibly die from whatever it is that this poor person is suffering from. And so um, what you tend to see is that when disease threat cues are around, people pay extra attention to them. Um, they tend to um, express heightened disgust. So that tends to be the emotion that's um, most closely related with how we handle disease threats. And again, it motivates avoidance. So mm -hmm. that's just putting it quickly. <laughs> yeah, but is there a difference between just being uh, exposed to the threat of an infectious disease and really getting it? I mean, does that make a difference in terms of how we behave? So are you asking sort of about like preemptive disease avoidance and then disease tolerance? So what happens if we actually get sick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also because uh, after that, I want to ask you the impact that inflammation itself has on our psychology. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, but what's interesting is um, it still really hasn't fully been answered exactly how our behavioral immune system um, fully relates to our actual physical immune system. So there's been a little bit of work done on this, um, not to um, toot Sarah's horn again, um, Dr. Hill, but um, her lab, um, I was lucky enough to work on a couple projects on this, but her lab does a lot of wonderful work looking at immune activation across different contexts. And so she's one of the people that sort of studied this a little bit. Um, Stacy Mahanova studies this a little bit. Um, and so there are people out there that sort of look at this, um, but over the years there's sort of been mixed results about the relationship between feeling disgusted, seeing disease cues in your, your environment and what your immune system does when that happens. Mm -hmm. And so some studies suggest that when you see somebody near you coughing, your immune system actually starts to subtly ramp up and expect to be infected. So um, Mark Scheller's lab did a study back in, I think it was like 2009 that found this. Um, it was a fairly small study though, and there have been some studies since that don't necessarily find that. Um, some of the work in Dr. Hill's lab, um, what we have found is that in fact, there's sort of a complementary relationship between feeling disgusted and having this sort of disease avoidance motivation and your actual immune activation. And so um, in the day-to-day, -day, especially when there aren't gross things around you at the moment, um, we find that actually having a kind of active disease avoidance motivation, so an active behavioral immune system, can actually help to save you immune function. So as I mentioned, it's sort of costly to run inflammation. It damages your body. It takes a lot more upkeep. It's more energetically costly. Um, and so if you're somebody who's a little bit more quick to be grossed out by things and you're a little bit more avoidant of things, you wash your hands more often, um, you're actually able to sort of rely more on that and less on your physical defense. And so this can actually save your body some effort. Mm -hmm. um, as far as actually getting sick, um, obviously um, what happens is your body sends out a cascade of these things called pro-inflammatory cytokines, which motivates your body to recognize, attack, and um, quarantine these intruders. Um, what this tends to do in people and animals alike is motivate this thing called sickness behavior. So um, take a second um, and tell me about the last time like you got sick, sort of how did you feel? What did you do the last well, time you got a cold or, or a flu? 
Well, I felt really tired and I just wanted to sleep all the time and get away from other people and yeah, basically isolate a little bit. So. Yeah, um, and so that's um, a pretty common reaction to feeling sick. Um, they actually call this sickness behavior. Um, you see it in not only humans, but lots of other species um, that when you're feeling sick, you tend to slow down, um, care a little bit less about things. They call it anhedonia. Um, you tend to be less likely to take risks. You really just want to stay home, watch Netflix, stay away from people and recover, right? And again, part of this is the extra metabolic need that you have, again, to fight off whatever it is you're facing. Um, but so they used to think of it as being like sort of this negative byproduct of being sick. But actually, um, some scientists think indeed that it's actually also an adaptation. Um, and so again, um, because being sick is such a costly business, um, actually having this set of responses that like motivates you to slow down can actually be good because it's giving your body a fighting chance to catch up with whatever it is that you have. Um, and in fact, some of our work has even found not looking at immune function, but looking at the set of motivations and behaviors that even just having the cues of sickness around might sort of motivate a preemptive sickness behavior. And so if you're expecting like you might get sick, um, you may actually start to sort of slow down and distance yourself and um, be a little less likely to take risks. Um, just preparing again for the, the potential that you might need to like use that energy on something more valuable. So getting better. Mm -hmm. But that aspect of distancing ourselves from other people and isolating a little bit, is it primarily to further protect ourselves? I mean, to not get even more infected or infected again, or is it also to protect other people from ourselves? That's a great question. Um, I don't have a great answer to it at the moment. I mean, a lot of the work I've done is focused on like the idea of protecting yourself and defending yourself, but you know, I think, you know, in real life and practicality, it's a more complex question than that, right? And like, we do have to consider other people. And so looking from a broader social psychology and health psychology standpoint, um, yeah, like we do make a lot of sacrifices to protect other people around us. Um, you know, as depressing as this pandemic has been, I found a little bit of faith in humanity here and there, right? When um, people have gone to great lengths to social distance, to quarantine and to protect the people around us. Um, not everybody has, but you, yeah. you've seen some great examples of it during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I don't have like a great body of studies that I can pull out to tell you about, you know, in defense of that, but like anecdotally, yeah, I think we do absolutely have a motivation to protect the people around us that we care about. But when we're sick, when we're infected, is it inflammation itself? I mean, is, it, is inflammation something that by itself causes behavioral changes? Sure. Um, so in the context of being sick, um, inflammation absolutely is one of the key things that motivates um, perception and behavior changes. So these pro-inflammatory cytokines that I mentioned, they're these little tiny proteins in your body that again, it's their job to sort of detect and flag down support when they, um, when they encounter something foreign in your body. Um, and one of the things that these do is again, they like motivate tons and tons and tons of your um, different immune cells designed to neutralize those threat to like start replicating and attacking. Um, and so they do definitely um, motivate that feeling of tiredness and that avoidance motivation. Um, one of the things that's sort of interesting too is that 
they seem to prompt some of those same um, changes in motivation and energy, even outside of the context of being currently sick with something. So there's a really beautiful body of literature on sickness behavior outside of current infection. Um, Robert Dancer is one of the people who sort of like created this literature um, on sickness behavior and finding that um, if you look at the brains of people who struggle with things like chronic depression, so depression also has these symptoms, right? A feeling sluggish, loss of interest in things, no energy, um, that these people show sometimes similar levels of um, inflammation as somebody who is physically actually sick. And so, um, so yeah, they, they can shape behavior both in and out of the context of being sick. Um, as far as if it's the sole influence on decision-making, I can't say that. Um, and another thing to say that's interesting is that our decision-making also plays a role in shaping our inflammation, right? So if you're somebody who's sick and you're inflamed and you choose to go out to work anyways and you choose to do things that sap you of your energy further, right? Like you might also drive changes in your inflammation. Or outside of the context of being sick, if you're somebody who eats very unhealthily, you're stressed out all the time, um, you know, you aren't exercising, hello academics, I see you, um, that right, you might be yeah. driving up your inflammation as well. So um, it's very, very interconnected. Um, yeah. So would this work on the behavioral immune, immune system and psychobehavioral immunology have some sort of implications for public health and how we deal with infectious disease? Absolutely. Um, so I think one of the things that's interesting from a public health standpoint is at least like in the context of medicine, we often seem to convince ourselves that, you know, true sanitation is possible, right? And that we can have these totally, um, you know, antiseptic environments like hospitals, right? Where people can be and there's no microbes floating around and we can be completely healthy and treat whatever somebody is facing, right? But one of the things that we know now that antibiotics aren't getting quite as good as they used to be because, you know, these little microbes are outpacing them in their evolution um, is that, you know, hospitals are actually pretty dirty places, right? Um, and so there's lots of these little bugs floating around and secondary infections are a real thing. And so, you know, I think we sort of cue people to expect one thing, but in reality, it's another, right? Like we cannot truly be completely free of infectious disease. Um, however, you know, we have a psychology that's sort of queued up to motivate us to do that. Um, my colleague, Hannah Bradshaw, she's done some really, really interesting work on this idea of sort of pathogen avoidance versus pathogen tolerance. Um, and so the idea being that, you know, when you make people aware that they're in an environment where they can't sort of break free of this threat, um, what you see is that over time, people actually tend to decrease disgust. And so let's say that, you know, you're somebody who is a medical practitioner who is knee deep in feces all the time, right? Um, or you're somebody who is, you know, a garbage collector and you're also knee deep in feces all the time for a different reason, right? Um, that maybe it's not so adaptive to spend all your time being grossed out by things and avoiding things and avoiding people, right? Like you have to live your life. Um, and at some point you just need to deal with it. Um, and so you find that there's this, again, this sort of beautiful interplay where um, you start to rely less on your behavioral immune system and a little bit more on your physical immune system, because again, kind of not worth um, spending all that time avoiding other people and opportunities when, you know, you're probably going to get sick anyways because mm -hmm. of your environment. Um, and so 
So the implications um, for public health, getting back to my original point, are that um, maybe we need to realize that we're in a little bit more of a pathogen tolerance sort of stage of our existence than a pathogen avoidance stage of existence and start really learning to cue people's expectations and how to sort of manage this low-grade inflammation that we may be faced with more and more as the world warms, warms things get more germy, right, and we become more interconnected um, around the world. Mm -hmm. Talking about that warming and moving on to the last topic of our interview, so could you tell us about your recent work on uh, climate change threats and how people think about climate change? Sure. Um, so big departure from my past work. Um, I sort of changed paths um, quite significantly when I came here for my postdoc. Um, the lab that I currently work in, the Disasters, Trust and Social Change Lab, um, our research is sort of twofold. Um, one thing that we focus on a lot here in Florida is the threat um, posed by disasters, so things stemming from like weather hazards, so events like hurricanes, um, wildfires, tornadoes, the like. We look at sort of the psychology of that mm -hmm. and people's um, perceptions and attitudes about how best to handle those threats. Yeah. Um, and so I have two PIs. Um, one of my PIs is a classic social psychologist and my other um, advisor, Jason, he's actually somebody who works in the field of disaster studies. Really, really fascinating um, field. He's an architect by background um, with like a construction management background, but he really spends most of his time looking at the sociology of disasters and the idea that um, even though disasters happen when one of these like hazard events happen, so a hurricane hits the coast of Florida, for example, um, disasters really start a long time before that hurricane hits. And so we know that um, resources, planning efforts, these aren't things that are done equally across all areas and across all groups of people. Um, throughout our development, governments have invested more in some neighborhoods than others, some communities than others. Um, and what this does is this creates vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. And so having unequal access to resources or government attention or things that you need to be better prepared for a weather hazard, it leaves some people more vulnerable. And um, it's that interaction between vulnerability and one of these dangerous events that can lead to something becoming a full-scale disaster. Um, and so a lot of our work in our lab really looks at trying to see, can we get people to sort of recognize the social piece of disasters? And um, sort of one of the things that we find is that people tend to be hazard focused. And so they focus a lot more on the hurricane as being the cause of the disaster, which certainly it plays a part, right? Um, but one thing that we know, um, at least as social psychologists, is that ignoring that social piece of things has all sorts of implications for people's policy attitudes on how we sort of prevent disasters and also recovery efforts. So, you know, are you somebody who's going to donate after a tsunami hits Southeast Asia, right? Um, and so that's sort of what we're studying here in lab in one half of things. Um, in the context of climate change, what we're doing work in is we're actually um, here in Florida, climate change is a real threat. Um, and we're going out and we're working with communities that I, like I mentioned, have sort of been underserved in the mm -hmm. past. And we're sitting down alongside um, these communities and we're asking, well, you've been left out of the decision-making process so far. Um, oftentimes you find that some of these communities that have been out, left out of the process um, of decision-making are the ones that are most at risk 
um, because of being left out of these processes. So things like redlining policies during city development back in the 30s, 40s, when a lot of cities were growing, they left some people in some neighborhoods especially vulnerable. Um, and these neighborhoods are also not the neighborhoods where the political capital rests today. And so the people who are suffering some of the worst um, outcomes of climate change in these extreme weather events are actually people who feel like they have the least ability to do something about them in the future. And so our job that we see as researchers is to go in and sort of center their voices. Mm -hmm. And so going forward, really asking them, what are the questions that you want studied? How can we help work with you to study them? Um, and how can we deliver the things that we find together to people like policymakers who hopefully will do a better job at listening and can work with you to do something about this to build better community capacity for things like climate change and disasters. So these also connects to inequality, correct? Absolutely. Um, inequality is really at the crux of creating some of this vulnerability, right? Um, I'll talk to you a little bit about a community that we're working in now, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. um, so we, yeah, we work in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and Jacksonville has sort of been broken apart into different health zones by their public health um, organization. And there's about six health zones. And one of the things that you look at when you um, look at the health outcomes in Jacksonville are there's this one zone in the middle of what they call the urban core, so the city center. It's one of the older parts of the city. Um, it was definitely um, the part of the city that was excluded in a lot of these decision-making processes, like I told you about planning um, during the development of the city. Um, it was subject to this thing called redlining. And so um, historically, a lot of the city's residents of color, so um, black residents um, and other residents who were um, poor as well, sort of got shoved into this one part of the city. There's a lot of industrial um, industrial buildings and things in that part of the city. There was, um, I think it was a wood processing plant there for decades and decades where um, some of the poorer people in Jacksonville worked at this plant. They weren't given proper protection. Um, the plant is now since gone, but they're actually still in the process of cleaning up the toxic waste from this plant. Um, it's literally an empty field now with just dust sitting in the field that every time it rains, this dust floods out of the field. There's an elementary school across the um, across the street from this field, and you can actually see the dust settle on the playground from this elementary school. It's really jarring, right? Um, and so unsurprisingly, given that this toxic waste plant hasn't been well cleaned up, um, it's a poor neighborhood, the pollen counts are through the roof because um, the plants and stuff aren't well maintained in that area. Um, you see rates of asthma in this neighborhood that are about four times the rate of the rest of the state of Florida. Um, you see cancer outcomes that are through the roof. Um, you also tend to see that um, chronic conditions related to stress like diabetes and hypertension are also higher in this neighborhood. Um, and so a lot of these things have been shaped by these de policy decisions that were made during the development of the city back in the 30s. Mm -hmm. It's really unfortunate. Um, so what would be some of the main goals with this work you're doing? Well, I think one of the things is that as researchers, um, not only do we have a tendency to overfocus on sort of what they call convenience populations, so people that we can easily work with to do our research, um, they tend to be undergraduate or relatively middle class and above and relatively white. Um, this comes at the cost of we care about human behavior, but we've ignored large swaths of humanity in our pursuit of this. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of this um, 
is that you need to make more of an effort to include the voices of people who haven't been as included in research in the past. It's important not only from a basic research standpoint, but from an ethical standpoint, right? Because we recommend policy decisions based on our psychological research. And if our research is only representing a certain part of the population, well, what are the implications of these policy decisions? We're creating more and more policies that only serve to benefit parts of our population, right? And so morally, right, we have a bit of a, um, a responsibility to include people that have been historically excluded from our research. Um, this comes though with like some hangups, right? Um, one thing about research is sort of uglier parts of our history is that we haven't always treated um, groups that have been politically marginalized very well in our research either. Um, so there's a pretty dark history of especially the black or indigenous communities in our country treating, being treated very poorly by researchers in the past who did try to include them. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of the Tuskegee study back in like the 1930s no, 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 70s. No, tell me about it. This is a study back in Alabama where researchers, this was a medical um, study, they were interested in knowing about the pro, um, process of syphilis. This like really, um, it's an STD. Um, it progresses slowly over years, but it eventually leads to death. Um, at the time that they started the study, there wasn't really a known cure for syphilis. Um, and so they wanted to study the progression of syphilis to see if they could better identify ways to mitigate it. Um, the downside of this, though, was that um, when they went to do this, they did not properly inform the people who they were enrolling in their study what they were doing. And so they took a lot of um, poor black men who were living in the South, who were um, largely sharecroppers, people whose direct descendants had been living in slavery, um, you know, undereducated, um, over over oppressed by you know current systems like Jim Crow laws. Um, and so they enrolled them in the study without their knowing. And they did absolutely nothing to treat them. In fact, during the course of this study, a cure for syphilis was found and they willingly did not treat people. Mm. Um, and so people in this study died when they could have um, you know, been treated. And also they infected partners and they infected other members of their community. And so um, this isn't, you know, the sole type of study like this that happened um, during the uglier stages of our nation's history. And so um, one sort of consequence of this was um, it's one of those studies that laid the rules for having the ethics guidelines that we have now as researchers, like the legal guidelines that we have. Mm -hmm. um, but still, there's a lot of mistrust, right, from some of these communities that have been treated so wrongly in the past towards researchers. Um, and I would actually argue that it's not misplaced mistrust, right? And so as researchers, we have a lot of work to do to gain back that trust um, to better include these people in our research. Because again, um, we have a history of being very exploitative. And even in recent years where we weren't harming people's you know, physical health explicitly like that, I mean, we're still harming community health and mental health. Um, one of the things that we hear from some of our community partners that we're trying to form these connections with is that in the past people have been interested and they've come in and tried to do research. And so they work with these community members, they get them to tell their stories. It's a very emotional and like heavy process to go through, right? And then they take the results of those studies, go publish them in a journal or a museum, and then the community never hears back again. And so they, they almost feel like somebody has taken a piece of them mm -hmm. and just gone away with it. And so it's really like we're continuing that dynamic of the past in some ways, albeit a lot less directly, but it's still harmful 
to um, to those communities, and we need to do more as researchers to sort of recenter these communities um, and create knowledge that they still own, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so, a lot of what our lab does here is we use research practices that are designed to do just that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, where can people find your work on the internet? Sure. Um, so a lot of this work that I'm talking about right now is ongoing, um, but we do have a disasters, trust, and social change lab webpage on the institute that we're under, so the Florida Institute of Built Environment Resilience. Um, there's a lot of excellent researchers also outside of our lab on this page that are doing interesting work about community resilience. Um, so I absolutely recommend visiting that website. Um, I also have a website that um, I'm happy to link people to. I have a Twitter where I open my big mouth way too much. Um, you're welcome <laughs> to follow me on there too if you want some not so hot takes. And I think that's really it. Um, I'm, I'm also on Google Scholar and ResearchGate. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So I will be leaving some links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And I really hope to have you on again when you have new work uh, on what you're working on right now. So, Thanks. Um, I hope this was helpful. Sorry for the sort of rough start. Um, thank you for being patient as I sort of got going. No, th thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Um, great to talk to you as well. Thank you for including me in your show. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Laguerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Linkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolfkin, Tim Hollis, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Ugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, 
Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons, Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Max Belby. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas Francis, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.